2: Erlon, I will never forget it.
1: Ear Hustle, stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it.
2: Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your
3: podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is a Tuesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, it's called COVID brain fog.
1: But the main hallmark feature of brain fog is really the disruption of attention and everything that goes along
3: with that. I'll speak with neuropsychologist Dr. Faith Gunning. She's involved with testing a prescription video game to curb the condition. All that's just ahead. But first this, there will be no price gouging at Georgia's gas pumps. Today, Governor Brian Kemp signed an executive order temporarily suspending the gas tax in Georgia. Now that's because of the Colonial Pipeline cyber attack. And Kemp's executive order further prohibits, quote, Price gouging by bad actors looking to exploit the situation. In addition, Kemp's executive order states that Georgia is increasing the weight limits for those trucks that are transporting fuel, which will provide more supply for stations as they receive their deliveries. Colonial Pipeline is headquartered in Alpharetta, Georgia, and transports a large amount of gasoline from Texas. To the northeast, in a statement, executives with Colonial Pipeline say they're working to, quote, substantially restoring operational service by the weekend. Meanwhile, analysts are telling consumers not to panic, but in North Carolina, there are already long lines at gas stations, and a closer look listener says he's had to drive around the city to find gas. By the way, let us know if you're having trouble as well, or tell us where there's plenty. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And Governor Kemp signed into law yesterday an overhaul of the state's citizen arrest statute. Prior to the signing, Georgia's citizen arrest law was considered vague. Now that law no longer exists and it limits Georgians as to who can arrest folks believed to have committed a crime. Today we are replacing a Civil War era law ripe for abuse with language that balances the sacred right to self-defense of a person and property with our shared responsibility to root out injustice and set our state on a better path forward. The bill signing comes as there are state and now federal charges against three white men involved in Ahmaud Arbery's shooting death in February of last year. Greg and Travis McMichael and their neighbor William Roddy Bryan claimed they were making a citizen's arrest and believed Arbery was responsible for some previous break-ins. A federal arraignment on hate crimes and attempted kidnapping charges is set for today, and hearings in the state murder prosecutions are scheduled for tomorrow and Thursday. Ahmad Arbery's mother, Wanda Cooper-Jones, and his sister also attended the signing. In other news, Georgia's COVID-19 vaccination rate could be increasing soon, now that the FDA is authorizing Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine for use in kids ages 12 to 15. Right now, Georgia's vaccination rate is still stuck at 28% of those eligible to receive the vaccine. And according to the state health department, more than 6.5 million vaccine doses have been administered. This is Closer Look. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. You may recall on this program, I had a conversation with Dr. Jermaine Jackson. Now, he's an Atlanta-based pulmonologist about the acute and chronic stages of COVID-19. Shortly after the Piedmont Pulmonary COVID-19 Recovery Clinic opened, Dr. Jackson shared that 80% of people infected with the coronavirus are asymptomatic. Dr. Jackson also shared that people usually recover from the virus between 8 to 10 days, but in some cases could take up to four weeks. And in some cases, people suffer from what's called long COVID or long-haul symptoms.
0: Fortunately, uh, we're starting to see a decline in the number of cases as well as in the number of deaths that are occurring. But we still got a long way to go as we continue to learn more and more about this disease, both its acute or early impact, as well as the the long-term effects of the the coronavirus.
3: And now we know that one of those long-term effects is referred to as COVID brain fog. So what exactly is COVID brain fog? Well, that's why our next guest is here. Joining me now is Dr. Faith Gunning, a neuropsychologist and the vice chair of research in the Department of Psychiatry at Weill Cornell Medicine located in New York. Dr. Gunning, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Dr. Gunning, welcome to the program. Thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Dr. Gunning, we'll get into your research in just a moment. But at first, I'd just like to get your personal thoughts on the FDA's authorization of the new Pfizer vaccine for children ages 12 to 15. What do you make of that?
1: Well, I think it's remarkable progress that's been made that we're now able to extend that vaccine down to to children and adolescents. I think it's going to be a game changer going forward as far as school and getting our kids back and integrated into their regular lives.
3: And I'm curious, as a scientist yourself, what has captivated you about this coronavirus? We've been dealing with this now for over a year.
1: So I think as a scientist, the the variability in how people respond to the illness and how it presents and the, the symptoms and the level of severity is really striking. and I, And I think Many would agree with that, that it's just striking how variable it is and somewhat unpredictable. And then I think as we progress and time passes, what has been striking and concerning is the number of people who are presenting with ongoing symptoms after the acute recovery phase.
3: And that's where we get into your research, but I wanted to define some terms for our listeners that they'll hear during this conversation. So first, let's begin with just defining, we've talked about this a little bit before on our program, but for those who may be hearing this for the first time, let's define what we mean by a COVID long hauler.
1: So a COVID long hauler is somebody who experienced symptoms, continues to experience symptoms after the acute period of illness. So typically um, that's defined as following four to six weeks after they've recovered from the illness.
3: And while it's not technically a scientific or medical term, let's explain for our listeners what COVID brain fog is and the symptoms that come with that.
1: So COVID brain fog is a bit of a catch-all term. And what it typically refers to is difficulty in um, concentrating and attending to what's happening in in one's daily life. So people will describe it as feeling different, that their thinking is, is different or a little bit off. But the main hallmark feature of brain fog is really the disruption of attention and everything that goes along with that.
3: So it's a cognitive condition or am I totally off here?
1: You know, people do define it some people define it more broadly. Um, I'm, I may be biased as a neuropsychologist. I really define it as a cognitive symptom. There are other symptoms that may go along with it, but the brain fog is typically thought of as, as a cognitive disturbance or, or, or difficulty.
3: And so far, do we know, does it tend to affect a specific patient population, male, female, Have you all been able to identify if it's broken down, if it's more prevalent based on ethnicity or or race? What do we know about
1: So I hate to give this answer, but I think we're still fairly early in understanding this COVID brain fog. And so we don't know yet. It does appear to occur more frequently in individuals who had more severe COVID illness, Mm -hmm. but- It is still appearing in a a significant subset of individuals who had more mild illness. So we're still trying to understand that. And I I think that's going to be really important to understand Mm -hmm. as we think about how we're going to manage it.
3: And how long after recovery have patients talked about this COVID brain fog, uh, these symptoms appearing?
1: So there's not as much scientific data about this just because of the course of when COVID presented and how long we've been studying it. But there are reports of it persisting in some individuals in a subset of individuals several months following the illness. That's where it becomes particularly concerning because if it's for a a truncated period of time, and then goes away then it's disturbing but it's less concerning it's for the individuals when it's several months after they've we would have thought they would have recovered from the illness
3: does it appear that this covid brain fog it gets better or is still too early or
1: i think it's i think it's too early to know my hypothesis is that like uh, for many individuals, it will get better over time. And I think that typically with any illness involving that impacts the the brain, there is a period of recovery. From what we understand, in a subset of individuals, it will get better over time and and they may very well return to their pre-COVID levels of functioning. And then a smaller subset may experience more Persistent symptoms. I'm a little hesitant to mm-hmm. say too much about the course of it yet because sure. I think we don't understand that well yet.
3: I'm curious, prior to the pandemic, can you think of or was there any other condition that might have mirrored COVID brain fog?
1: People have talked about like brain fog within the context of some other illnesses. So, for example, with post concussion, so people who have have suffered from concussions. They've also talked about it within the context of cancer survivors, the most common being breast cancer survivors, a subset. And also following an ICU stay, this brain fog, it's not unheard of. With COVID, one of the things that's very concerning is is the sheer number of people who have been infected with it. And then thinking, even if it's a small subset who experienced this brain fog, the numbers are substantial.
3: The voice you hear is Dr. Faith Gunning, a neuropsychologist and the vice chair of research in the Department of Psychiatry at Weill Cornell Medicine up in New York. And we're talking about COVID brain fog. What is it? And her research in testing a new interactive way of helping folks that are experiencing COVID brain fog. So let's discuss this trial that you're conducting at Wild Cornell Medicine. And I know when, when we hear video games, and I, like, <laughs> I love video games, but this is not necessarily new. This is in using this interactive therapeutic game, Endeavor RX. I'll let you take it from here. Mm-hmm. Before we get into how you hope it will help with COVID brain fog, you've had experience with this type of, should we call it a therapy or a treatment?
1: I like to call it an intervention because for COVID brain fog, we think it will work, but we don't have the data yet to say that it will. So I primarily do research, but in the clinical aspect of my work where in seeing patients, I have worked in rehabilitation medicine for many years. I started working with an earlier version of what is now Endeavor Rx several years ago with some of my colleagues, and we actually first tested it out in older adults who were suffering from depression. Mm -hmm. And the reason we tested it out, and I didn't think it was gonna work, but uh, the reason we tested it out is because in this subset of older adults with depression, they had both mood symptoms, but they also had cognitive symptoms. So they had Um, difficulty with attention and was fairly disabling and tended not to respond well to standard approaches to treating depression. Mm -hmm. So we actually used this video game in a clinical trial and compared it to the gold standard psychotherapy. And in that initial small trial, what we found was that both groups, their depression improved to the same degree, which is mm-hmm. interesting because the individuals were doing the video game at home with just weekly check-ins to make sure they were safe and they were doing the game. So it was quite impressive, but only the group who participated in the in the video game condition actually um, showed improvement in their What we call working memory or the ability to hold Mm -hmm. information online and manipulate it. And we actually did brain MRIs um, pre and post the use of the video game. And we showed improvement in the connections among some of the brain areas that we think are very important in both depression and to support Attention and multitasking, and a lot of these cognitive skills we use in our daily life. And then the Achille Interactive, whose platform it is, they've also tested it in other neurologic groups and have very positive results.
3: So, at what point did it hit you or the other researchers, or you particularly, you said, you know, well, maybe this will work with those experiencing this, this COVID brain fog.
1: So, in the fall, we have. Data collected from individuals who were treated in the hospital and a, specifically on a rehabilitation medicine unit, and we had data to show that in a very high proportion of those individuals, they were showing this difficulties with attention and multitasking, similar difficulties that the that the video game um, targets, Endeavor RX targets. And so we had this observation. I've been working with the folks at Achille for a while and they had recently gotten FDA clearance for their intervention for ADHD and really being in New York or probably wherever you were in the country at the time, you know, and seeing the sheer prevalence of number of people being infected and that they, that there were these cognitive issues that were appearing. I think we simultaneously in uh, around October or November came to the idea that it would be really great. We're, we're going to have to figure out how we can intervene mm-hmm. with the sheer number of people who may end up with some persisting cognitive issues. And that's the great thing about the, about Endeavor Rx is it can be done at home.
3: And I wonder if you can, if if we can. I wish we were doing video. We could maybe play a clip of it. This video game. What is the goal? Or, or you know, when I think of video games, I grew up on Pac Man and, and yeah, me too. <laughs> I'm
1: showing
3: sure, I'm sure my age. Uh, and Donkey Kong. Uh, what is the what's the mission in the video game?
1: So the focus of it really is to target multitasking. So the ability to do more than one thing at a time. And so the way it looks like a video game, one task is to steer the iPad Mm -hmm. in order to avoid some of the obstacles and to stay on the path that you're supposed to be on. And at the same time, respond to certain types of stimuli that are coming your way and ignore others. So it's really a multitasking type of intervention. And it's beautiful. The graphics are beautiful. So the other reason that I find it an interesting intervention is that because it's fun and, you know, it has points and badges and you level up and because the way the algorithm works, and I I won't go into detail about this, Mm -hmm. but it's individually adapted for whoever's doing it. So it's not like all of a sudden it becomes way too hard or way too easy. So it keeps the individual in, engaged.
3: And what does that do for the brain? Does it provide some type of stimuli or what is it doing to the and brain?
1: So the way I think about it, when the video game is done in an, in an ideal way, it's an almost daily basis for about 25 minutes a day. Mm-hmm. And so basically it's repeated engagement of what I think of the is these networks that are likely brain networks are not functioning as efficiently as they could be. Mm -hmm. And so with this repeated engagement, what we believe is that it actually improves the functioning of those networks, and the connection among among those networks, the multitasking, when you think about daily life, and I think about my daily life, the ability when you improve the brain networks that support the, that kind of function, multitasking is important for everything we do. So we might think of it as memory, but if you can't pay attention to more than one thing at a time, you're going to not take in a lot of information that might be necessary for work or even going to the grocery store or for social interactions.
3: Are you all currently enrolling uh, participants in this trial? Should we call it a trial?
1: Uh, yes, it's a trial. We're right on the launching pad. We're about ready to start. We just have to get through certain regulatory aspects, but we're we're very very close.
3: And how long could it take to determine whether or not the the game the this intervention is become effective? How do you measure that?
1: Individuals will who enroll will do the game for 6 weeks we'll look at both their cognitive abilities and also their functional abilities their ability to function in daily life both before and after the 6 weeks of the intervention our goal is to enroll quickly and it's a fully remote study so it can be done in people's homes and we'll provide the technology that they need. We wanted to cast as wide a net as possible and not only enroll people who could come into the institution. So we're hoping that we will finish the actual trial within six months. We want to get results out there Mm -hmm. at a time when it can be maximally beneficial to the, if it works, to the greatest number of people.
3: Meanwhile, what has been working for those experiencing COVID brain fog? Has there been anything that works?
1: So people are trying, some of the standard rehabilitation methods would work where teach people strategies and coaching and how to compensate for their difficulties. And that is tried and true approach to rehabilitation of cognitive issues. I think that the reason something like this Is interesting to us is that we can reach more people. Not everybody is going to get in to see Mm -hmm. a highly trained rehab specialist. So we may, if this works, then it can reach a broader range of people and they may use it alone or they may use it in combination.
3: Dr. Faith Gunning, a neuropsychologist and the vice chair of research in the department of psychiatry at Weill Cornell Medicine located in New York City. Dr. Gunning, it's a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time. We want to check back in with you all along the way and, and how this is going.
1: That would be great. Thank you.
0: Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U.
3: And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. Raise your hand if you need a vacation. Not you driving. In fact, some of our Closer Look listeners told me, yes, they need a vacation. And their summer plans include traveling.
2: Both my wife and I have gotten our shots, and so we're going to travel. Of course, we're going to practice social distancing and everything. So we're going to be in the car, and we're going to enjoy the
3: economy opening back up. And
2: we want to contribute to it. We're going to save up and enjoy what Florida has to offer.
3: We're going out to Florida. We're driving. But this summer, we're hoping to go out of the country to the Caribbean, if that's
0: possible. But we've been trying to get the vaccine. We haven't been able to get both vaccines yet, but we certainly would love to get the vaccines before we travel. You know, next month, I plan on going back to Michigan to see some family. really want to see my parents and my uncles and my grandparents, um, and everyone got vaccinated, and I'll be fully vaccinated. Me and some friends decided that we're going to head to Mexico and and kind of just enjoy and get away.
3: Y'all going to Florida? Mexico? Cool. According to a new report from TripAdvisor, more than 67 percent of Americans plan to travel this summer. And of course, Memorial Day is just weeks away. The report finds that hotel and lodging searches are on the rise as well. And now that the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, they have these latest guidelines easing up those masking restrictions for fully vaccinated people. Y'all are going to be all over the place, which means this summer will look nothing like last Meaning a very busy summer. And that includes short term rental companies such as Airbnb, which they've launched an eight point plan called the Summer of Responsible Travel. And joining me now to talk more about this is Ben Bright from Airbnb's Public Affairs Department. Ben, thanks for taking the time.
0: Thank you so much. Great to be here. Where
3: are you, where are you, what are you doing this summer? Are you traveling? Where are you going?
0: <laughs> <laughs> i'm uh i'm traveling all over the place and making up for all the weddings that were uh that were postponed that i was supposed to be at last year so should should be busy and should be on the road quite a bit it's so exciting you,
3: so when y'all hear folks are going to hit the road they're traveling this summer that is good for folks like you and your industry how long you been in this space
0: uh, so Airbnb was founded actually in, in the uh, in the midst of, of the Great Recession. Mm-hmm. So uh, just as President Obama was taking office, kind of a weird time to be uh, to be starting a, a, a company. But uh, that that's those that's the origin story of, of, of Airbnb It was founded in San Francisco. Um, uh, just a, a few our, our co-founders were just trying to make their rent. <laughs> yeah, by, by renting out a few airbeds on their floor, literally, mm-hmm. uh, dur- during a, a conference that came to town. And all these years later, we've got 5.6 million listings throughout the globe, including uh, quite a few in Atlanta.
3: You know, you all did report a, a revenue of $859 million for the fourth quarter of last year, but you did cite a loss. I imagine did the pandemic have a little bit to do with that?
0: Yeah, you know, it, it, a year ago at this time it it was a scary it was obviously a scary moment for everyone for for obvious reasons um but you know for those of us at at the company for our host community you know travel literally stopped mm-hmm. it paused <laughs> uh and and it was just unclear you know what what is this going to look like moving forward um but as we began to learn more about about this virus and and how it spreads and that there are ways to leave your home safely and responsibly if you're following that public health guidance. Um, You know, we started to see things pick up, people who wanted to get out of their homes, but wanted to be able to socially distance too. You know, and when the CDC came out and said, look, if you're gonna travel, Um, you know, the, the, the safest way to do so appears to be in a vacation rental, Mm -hmm. uh, maybe not so much in, uh, you know, a giant hotel with a huge lobby and you're sharing elevators. Right. So, um, we started to see a spike in people who wanted to get out of their homes, were able to do it safely and responsibly. We saw spikes in rural travel. Um, so people, I mean, Atlanta is always an incredible destination, Mm uh, but, you know, people wanted to get off the beaten path, even out of cities, um, so there have been some really fascinating trends as a result.
3: So are you saying if folks wanted to maybe check out more remote destinations?
0: Yeah, that, I mean that that's where there's just a ton of growth going on. Uh, and I think we're going to continue to see that, even though there's now a light at the end of the tunnel. People are getting vaccinated. So um, that should hopefully be you know positive for you know more urban uh, you know big cities that have always been uh, great destinations, um such as Atlanta, of course. Um, but I, I think, you know, the, the, the trend of kind of rural staycations, that's not going away. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think people have fallen in love with a lot of these communities, especially out near lakes, out in the mountains, um, really skyrocketed in popularity.
3: That being the case, Ben, you all have, you have to give guidelines. Obviously, we know about the public health officials, but you all also have to give guidelines to your host. And now you have this new eight point plan, the summer of responsible travel. Uh, how did all this come about?
0: Sure. so so you know it started in the wake of the pandemic where you know we were trying to get guidance out to our hosts and to our guests on what is the way to to be able to travel responsibly and of course, this is before the vaccine was was widely available. Um, so at the time we actually brought aboard uh, Dr. Vivek Murthy, who is now the Surgeon General. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was not at the time this this was prior to the election. Um, so he was able to um, you know help us with with that guidance and I think most importantly, um, a, a pretty uh, comprehensive cleaning protocol um, that, that we were asking in particular our hosts to adapt to and to follow and to their credit. You know, they really stepped up. Uh, I think cleaning, you know, for anyone who's used Airbnb or short-term rentals before and particularly for those who have hosted, cleaning has always been paramount. I mean, mm-hmm. if, if, you're, if you're not doing the job on the cleaning front, even in normal times, you're not gonna last very long and our platform really is the, is the reality. Um, but obviously, you know everyone had to raise their game, mm-hmm. and there were kind of particular measures that um, that we were re- recommending and eventually began to mandate um, that they follow. And one unique one is just asking, hey, you know, if you're going to be coming into contact with your guests for whatever reason, um you need to be wearing a mask. Just mm-hmm. really simple stuff like that um, and, and and just following the public health guide. And so some of this kind of predates um, the mm-hmm. vaccine being widely available. but as things are opening up, Travels coming back, um, you know, people are, are are getting, you know, hopefully immune from from this horrific violence that is, you know, just ravaged our entire country, including Atlanta. Um, you know, we still need to be following that that public health
3: guidance. Do you have a mask um, for your dog, Ben?
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah I, may, I may run back and, uh, and, and it, take care of that. Your dog's fine. It's
3: okay. It's, <laughs> she, it's public she's, she's radio. so excited about it's, safe and
0: responsible right. travel. It's you know?
3: public radio. We don't care about dog barking. Let me ask you this because, <laughs> and, we, and we're talking about safety measures with Ben of public affairs with Airbnb because it goes beyond, obviously, when we're talking about the coronavirus, but you all have had another issue here. And in this new plan, I understand you're going to, you have something that you can hopefully prevent so-called Party houses. Now, here in Atlanta, right. we've had city council members raise concerns over this. Totally. What do you all have in this eight-point plan that addresses that?
0: Sure. So, some of this is long-term, and some of this is really special for, for the upcoming summer. Um, we we know that this is an issue uh, of concern, particularly in Atlanta. Uh, in many ways, predates Airbnb. But look, the reality is when 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 bars closed, when 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 clubs closed, or at least were restricted you know, some of that behavior, you know, people didn't want to stop it. Mm -hmm. um, And they attempted to take it to to homes that they were renting. Um, So we really had to step up. It's just not something we're going to tolerate. We ban parties, we just we ban party houses, right. So with that, we're talking about a home where, you know, it's happening over and over and over again, we're getting reports every weekend. Uh, That's not something we're going to tolerate, but also just straight up parties in general, messaging out to our guests, look, if that's something you're trying to do, First off, maybe maybe don't <laughs> maybe follow you know the advice of, uh, of 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 the public health officials of mm-hmm. the Atlanta officials and, and don't do that. Uh, but also there's going to be really stringent measures that that we're going to take. We've even begun um, in, in certain cases taking legal action against ho- against guests. Uh, excuse me, who have thrown unauthorized parties mm-hmm. who have violated both our rules, our host rules, um, you know, for the duration of, of, of much of the pandemic, the city's rules. Right, so just not something we're going to tolerate.
3: So, Ben, how do you define party, and then a gathering, and then also? Sure, I'll, I'll let you finish that. Go ahead.
0: Yeah, no, it's 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 because you know we we've also set an occupancy cap at sixteen people. Obviously, a, a, you know, a party or something disruptive can still happen with less than sixteen people. We we acknowledge that. So, uh, drawing the line at sixteen has helped. Um, Uh, Get some clarity out Mm -hmm. to our hosts and guests that I don't care what you're doing. If it's over 16 people right now in this pandemic, not okay. Uh, And below that, look, it's just about respecting neighbors and and just nothing disruptive is really the name of the game. So another thing we've rolled out is a 24-7 neighborhood hotline. Mm -hmm. Um, It's accessible at airbnb.com slash neighbors. And we encourage any neighbors to follow up with us if there's anything we need to know about.
3: How do you make sure that folks aren't going to be unfairly profiled? As well, in terms of the guests,
0: hundred percent. And this this is something you know, and and um, you may already be aware of this, but you know, dating back to twenty sixteen, this first came you know became public. I think in a in a really big way, you know, the Airbnb while black um, uh, hashtag, Mm -hmm. and it was a real formative moment for the company. Um, So a few things that we've done um, in, in the wake of that were a beefed up non discrimination policy. Uh, we've introduced a community commitment in addition to that. So it's on the front end as you're joining the platform, we're asking you to commit that yeah, basically you won't be racist. <laughs> it's, a, it's a little uh, uh, less blunt than that. but Yeah, uh, I mean, you and will, if you, you will, yeah, you're you will assuming folks without, will
3: say, like, I, w- I commit to not you know being someone who's racist. But, but, but you know but
0: what's interesting is there are uh, over 1.4 million people who have not. Who have declined that community commitment because they couldn't accept that commitment they were we were asking them um, uh, to align with just saying that really? they could not act without absolutely. Over well, you know what? I guess 40%. that's
3: good. You, you yeah. want to know who doesn't want to commit to being a racist? Hundred
0: percent. And those people are banned from Airbnb. And honestly, that is worse.
3: wild. Right. and, yeah. and maybe so, not surprising, Ben.
0: Totally, totally. Um, so I, I think there's a lot more. One thing that that we've done as well is we have taken away profile photos until the booking is accepted, right? So this is something that we were hearing um, from guests saying, look, when I'm trying to get a reservation, you know, my, my photo is evident and I feel like it may be a factor, right? So we took that away. Um, so uh, hosts are not seeing uh, that that profile photo until after the booking is already accepted. Um, I think there's a lot more on, on the way and we got a lot more work to do, but I, I think we're proud of what we've accomplished so far in the wake of uh, of that real formative moment in twenty sixteen,
3: Ben, as we wrap up, what have you all learned in terms of how the pandemic might change your industry or you know home sharing or home, you know short-term rental industry as a whole? what are the lessons but learned here?
0: Hundred percent. I think what we've learned is travels never going to be the same. Travel's never going to be the same. And additionally, I, I, you know it, uh, talking about some of these rural destinations. That trend is not going away. I mean, I think people have fallen in love with a lot of these areas of the country that haven't traditionally been huge travel hubs. So that's number one. But also the way work is changing, where you're going to see a lot more flexibility, a lot more people able to work remotely. We're seeing a lot more folks who are just kind of booking Airbnbs for a month or two and just kind of living elsewhere uh living and working mm-hmm. i did it myself along with my wife uh for for two weeks back in gatlinburg tennessee uh and and we loved it so i think that's a trend that's not going away as well
3: all right ben bright with airbnb's public affairs department we'll have a link to your eight point plan for the summer of responsible travel ben thank you so much for taking the time i appreciate it um what's your dog's name
0: <laughs> Her name is Bree. <laughs> Bree? All right, yeah.
3: Fairly behaved. We'll go with that.
0: So, so uh, yeah, a <laughs> little bit of hiccup, but we appreciate it. Thank you.
3: <laughs> Thank you, Ben, for taking time. I appreciate it. Yes, it's that time of year. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. I know. Get your Kleenex out. Get your cameras out. Camera phones. Graduations from pre-K to college. Yes, they have pre-K graduations. I should know because I've been to one. It was over in like five minutes, but nevertheless, he graduated. For the past few years on this program, I've spoken to a lot of area graduates about their journeys and hopes for the future Last year, we had to take a brief pause due to the COVID-19 pandemic. But now we're back and ready to hear more great stories from the class of 2021. Joining me now to kick off this series. He's the first one up. It's Andre Lugwit, a chemistry student from Clayton State University. Andre, thank you for taking the time. I appreciate it.
2: Thank you so much for this opportunity, Rose.
3: How are you? How has this last year been for you?
2: It's been... Unlike anything I've, I've ever experienced, uh, <laughs> having to adapt my learning style to online learning, it, it's been uh, a trip for everybody, I'd have to say.
3: How did you adapt? What did you, how'd you get through it?
2: Uh, I had to double down on everything I knew about networking and using computers uh, for everything from textbooks and communicating with my professors and learning learning. Uh, to do pretty technical stuff, uh, including a little bit of computer coding, which was, I think, very helpful uh, for the future.
3: And as a chemistry student, you're used to being in the lab and doing all that. I guess had to be a little shock to your system, as well. right?
2: Yeah, uh, being in the lab is, I think, the bread and butter of being a chemist. You get to experience firsthand the chemical changes that you're uh, that you're making, and a lot of the uh, systems. Uh, It's, I think, uh, difficult to do that kind of research at home when you're away from the lab. So we had to make do and uh, institute some more policies where we'd take turns, shifts in the lab using equipment. And everybody came together pretty well to to overcome those odds and, and keep this learning on track.
3: Let's go back a little bit to your roots. You grew up in South Georgia, right?
2: Yeah, a little old Waycross, uh, Georgia, yeah, Ware County, nine one two crew.
3: Now you're down. Is that in the
2: old
3: Okefenokee area?
2: <laughs> oh yeah, I'm a swamp kid. Now, see, I would I would never dating. call
3: you that because you can call yourself that, but I would never call you that swamp kid. <laughs> Get out of here.
2: What was it's it like? A- term of endearment, uh, mm-hmm. it, it's, uh, pretty rural. Yeah. Uh, it's pretty rural. It's pretty out country. Living in Atlanta now for a little over a decade, it's a night and day as far as uh, the way things usually uh, take place. There's a lot more uh, people oriented stuff to do up here and yeah. down there. There's way more nature to, to look at and experience.
3: Well, and let's be clear, Andre, we don't have to worry about gators coming up, you know, in the morning on your porch. At least not where I live. <laughs>
2: <laughs> right. No, uh, you don't really have to worry about the gators going up on, on your porch unless you got uh, little pooches on the porches.
3: <laughs> Tell me about um, your childhood, because I understand a lot of that in terms of what your parents were into your father. A lot of that has shaped kind of your interest in, in what you want to do.
2: Oh, definitely. My father really instilled in me an intellectual desire, uh curiosity to want to learn more and try to see things from new perspectives my father is uh, from colombia as well so i grew up with an international perspective in mm-hmm. an area that's uh, pretty socially homogenous it's not as much diversity in rural georgia and mm-hmm. south georgia so uh, i my father definitely helped shape a lot of the way that i i, I perceive things um and and particularly the way that I like to care for the environment. Um, and uh, my mother definitely instilled a pretty gracious heart uh, in me as well. So uh, between my mother, my father, and my sister, Michelle, I, I think uh, I turned out okay.
3: <laughs> Let's talk about your passion for the environment. Um, and what exactly did your father do?
2: He's a soil conservationist. He works for the NRCS, which is a part of the uh, USDA. He goes around and uh, maps soils all around the South.
3: When you assess, and this is through your personal lens, when you assess how we, and we'll just say as a nation, we won't pick on Georgia, but as a nation, and we've we've come a long way in terms of, you know, sustainability and obviously um, concerns about the environment, um, how would you assess how we as a nation, now we're doing now in terms of, of efforts to really get people, everyone on board in terms of understanding the importance of, of protecting our, our environment? It,
2: uh, there's far more awareness now, and I can see it starting to grow even more here in Atlanta, uh, in the Atlanta area. But I think sustainability as uh, a public... Uh, opinion is still in its infancy and we're still learning a lot about uh, some of the, the negative effects of our like plastic consumption mm-hmm. of our uh, uh, different like air pollution uh, we're still seeing some of the effects creeping up on us and it's not well known yet and i think um if I had to give a, a class grade, I would give us about a, a B, B plus uh, as far as uh, how well we're educating the, the general populace um, as to how uh, things are, are are being polluted. But uh, I think there's still, for instance, uh, looking out uh, uh, on the roads, you see mm-hmm. a lot of trash and little plastics. And I know some people will say, "Well, it's just like a little gum wrapper." Mm-hmm. Well, it's the little things that are hard to collect sure. on down the road, and eventually they make their ways down to the ocean. Um, if and it's easier to to net larger things, but the the microplastics might be causing some deleterious effects on our health uh, in the long term.
3: Well, we've all seen, you know, video footage of. The, the garbage, trash, whatever you want to call it, plastic that is just floating and in, in out there in, in some of our waterways. Um, why do you think it's still such a hard message to get across to some people? Or not just to people, because we want to be fair, because a lot of our products that we that we buy, that we purchase, everything that we bring into our homes, that comes from manufacturers. So why do you think it's still such a, a hard message? Uh, Sale, i guess for folks to understand and maybe people say well if you give me an alternative to my grocery shopping plastic bag then i'll take it what are you, what's your uh, response to
2: that so uh, i think a great way to sum it up is out of sight out of mind uh, a lot of people don't know where the the garbage ends up and how it collects in huge piles uh um, in different places of the earth uh because it's out of sight and out of mind, it's not something that people think about whenever they're in the aisles like, oh, what's going to happen to uh, this bottle of uh, uh, water or something? Uh, once you finish the water that's inside, is there a way to reuse this plastic? And thankfully, we've been pushing hard for uh, recycling plastics and, um, and moving away from plastic, maybe something that's easier to recycle, like glass. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's still an uphill battle because it's so cheap to, to build something out of fresh plastic mm-hmm. um, that it the economic incentive isn't quite there yet.
3: If you just join us, I'm joined by Andre Lugwit. He's a chemistry student from Clayton State University. He kicks off our Closer Looks annual graduate series profile. And, you know, this is your, you're getting a degree in chemistry, but this is also a second degree for you, correct?
2: <laughs> yes. Uh, I you just I love school, degree. don't you, Andre? <laughs> I really do. Uh, going back to school when you're older, uh, it's you already have a good idea of who you are, so you're not doing the dual uh, learning technical stuff and then also learning who you are outside of uh, outside of your home. So going back to school is way more fun as you uh, as you're older and you're better aware of how you best learn. So uh, I really enjoy school. My first degree was at uh, Georgia State mm-hmm. University in political science. Uh that goes back to uh, my father being an intellectual and putting that in me. Uh, I, I just enjoy learning. It doesn't really matter what. Uh, I like the details.
3: I understand. I hear you. In other words, I just hope for me to get a PhD is what you're saying.
2: <laughs> That's the goal. I made a deal with my wife that I go ahead and get into business and uh, make some money before I go back to grad school. But eventually, uh, eventually I'll get there.
3: Speaking of the future, what do you want to do? How do you want to wrap all of what you have achieved so far and then also with this passion you have for the environment what do you want to do
2: so the way i see things going uh, i believe with uh, our new computational prowess uh, i believe that a lot more chemistry is going to be able to be simulated on computers. So if I go back for my PhD, I want to do something where I can uh, use computers to simulate these chemical reactions. It'll decrease our need for uh, for reagents, which is very costly to purchase, but also very costly to uh, have in store, mm-hmm. and also very costly to uh, to dispose of. So by being able to use just a computer to simulate uh, the the uh, physical interactions between the chemicals. mm, I think that is uh, like the way that chemistry will eventually go.
3: Using chemistry and and sustainability for the environment.
2: Especially there. um, Understanding the way that things interact at the chemical level Mm -hmm. helps you paint a better macroscopic picture.
3: And let me ask you this before I let you go: uh, How optimistic are you that we'll get to some point, some point in this, well, in your lifetime, that we will? And what is an, I guess, a proper metric to assess when this nation has received, has, has achieved this, this plateau of really being truly a, 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 a nation that has taken all of these green initiatives, climate initiatives, whatever you want to call it, initiatives, and we've reached this state where we are truly a, a sustainable nation and we've reduced a whole lot of these the gases and all this other stuff that folks argue about. It, is, that, is that reachable in your lifetime?
2: Uh, it, I think it's a necessity. I think it will be required to be reached in within my lifetime, within our lifetimes. Uh, I think in the next big debacle we have to face as society is going to be climate change. And Mm -hmm. a lot of the businesses that put out net zero policies or decreasing our emissions by so so much percentage by this uh, amount of time, I think those are very positive pushes that uh, start at the policy level and then work their way down. It's good to have those leaders uh, talking about that. It will come about in our lifetime as was a necessity.
3: <laughs> when you think back to when you were little, growing up down there in South Georgia, watching your dad do his work and your mom, did you imagine you would have taken that same route even at that early of an age?
2: It, hindsight makes it very apparent. <laughs> it, it makes sense how I got here doing uh and doing what I'm doing now. And
3: how excited are you for this graduation, your second degree, Clayton State University,
2: bachelor's uh, degree in chemistry. I, I'm super excited about it. I'm very excited. My first degree, it, it was, it was, as a, as a professor put it, it was for funsies. I really enjoyed <laughs> it, was, it. This one, this one was equally fun, but also very practical.
3: Funsies,
2: <laughs> for funsies. <laughs> yep.
3: My professor told you that at Georgia State.
2: <laughs> was, uh, you have to say their name. Been in school for a while. His name is Doctor Solomon. He taught me linear algebra, back in 2010.
3: <laughs> Funzy. Well, Andre, best of luck to you. Congratulations. Best of luck to you and your family. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you for kicking off this year's Closer Looks uh, Annual Graduate Profile Series. I really appreciate it. Andre LeWitt, a chemistry student from Clayton State University. Thank you so much, Andre. I really appreciate it. Andre, I got to tell you, you are the most laid I thought I was laid back and cool. Brother, you are like the most laid back and cool person I've ever interviewed on this show and I
2: thank love Thank you it. so much Rose. I've been <laughs> listening to your show for a long time this has been a pleasure and an honor thank you so much.
3: I right, appreciate it best of luck to you That's it for this edition of Closer Look coming up on tomorrow's program a partnership between a real estate investment management company and a national hunger nonprofit. they're coming together to launch a food rescue and hunger relief program and we'll meet an Emory University graduate who already had an established career in pediatric research and as an associate professor. But he's giving that all up to become a civil rights lawyer. That's on tomorrow's program. And if you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. Subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott.